0: The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verse 31 to 36. If you are using a pure Bible, the verses can be found on page 73. Again, the verses are from John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. Let us hear the word of the Lord. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speak of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bear witness, and no one received his witness. He who have received his witness have set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speak the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and have given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son have eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the word of the Lord. May your heart burn within us as he opened to us the scripture this morning. You may be seated.
1: Lord, you are above all, and your greatness is unmeasured. It's unfathomable. Lord, your glory and your righteousness, your holiness, your splendor, your majesty, your radiance, your compassions, your mercy, your long suffering, your love, your steadfast love. they know no end. And you have put them all on display supremely in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. When we look to Christ, Father, we see your compassion. We see your great love. We see your mercy towards the undeserving. Lord, we see your covenant faithfulness that you are the God who keeps his word. You you swear to your own hurt and you do not change. We see your loyalty, your faithfulness, that even when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful, Lord, because you cannot deny yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would exalt your faithfulness among us this morning. Get our eyes off of ourselves, Lord, and cast, us, cast our eyes upon your beloved Son. He, he is the Son. He is the son of your love. Should he not be the object of our love? Father, we pray you would do this great work among us this morning, so that our hearts would indeed burn within us as we behold your glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would be with those who are not among us this morning. I think of Marsha traveling to see her grandchildren, one of which, see one of them, but having two grandchildren in the hospital in different states, suffering very serious, uh, suffering through very serious matters. God, I pray that you would fill her with grace, fill her with compassion and mercy, fill her with strength, Lord, that though she's still recovering from her knee surgery, she would have strength of your spirit to serve mightily. For the good of those to whom she's ministering. God, we pray that your presence would be with her, that you would satisfy her in the morning with your steadfast love, and in the strength of your love, that you would send her forth to to labor in faithfulness for the glory of your name. God, we miss her. We pray that you would keep her safe, that you would bring her back to us soon. Pray that you would heal her grandchildren, Lord, that you would be merciful ordering the steps of these two little ones unto that point where they come to meet you, Father, and your beloved Son, that they would have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we, we also want to lift up Vicki Patton this morning to you and Greg Patton. You know, Lord, you know, you know all that they're going through. You are not unaware. So please, minister to their hearts this morning. Strengthen them, Lord, to lift their hands and worship you. May their hope remain fixed firmly upon your covenant love in Jesus Christ. It does not change, never fades away, never comes to an end. Thank you for the blood of Christ, Father, that cleanses us from all of our sin. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that makes us presentable in your sight, that you have clothed us in the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Father, help us know fully, more fully, what you've done for us in your Son this morning. I pray that you'd be with us now. In Jesus' name, you would bless our time in your word. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ is above all, and that is the message of the entire New Testament. In fact, I was just reading uh, this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 that God the Father has raised Christ up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Christ truly is above all. That's the main point of the entire New Testament, and that is the main point of what John is saying to his disciples here in John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. And that's what he is laboring to help them understand that Christ is the one who is above all, not John, not any other man but Christ. Now, we saw last week that John's disciples were feeling threatened by the ministry of Jesus, mostly because of a misplaced zeal that they had for their own teacher, John. Now, John responded basically by saying to them that they had entirely missed the point of his ministry. That John had been saying from the beginning that he was not the Christ. He was merely a voice who had been sent ahead of the Christ to prepare the way for him. He was not the bridegroom. The the bride didn't belong to him. He was merely the friend of the bridegroom who had been sanctioned by God to guard the bride of his son until the son arrived. At which point, when the bridegroom had finally come, John says to his disciples in verse 30, it's time for the friend of the bridegroom to decrease, and it's time for the bridegroom himself to increase. Now in verses 31 through 36, John continues to make that point by preaching five truths about the supremacy of Christ to his disciples. Five ways that Christ truly is exalted above all. And he was doing that to the end that Christ, who is above all, would be above everything and above all in the hearts of his own disciples. That's what John is laboring for. And the Holy Spirit has preserved this account of this final sermon of John the Baptist. So that Christ also would be lifted up above all in our hearts as well. So today we're looking at five truths about the supremacy of Christ. And the first one is... Uh, seen in verse 31, that Jesus is above all because he comes from above all. Jesus is above all because he comes from above all. I do have um, outline slides there, Hans. You mind getting those up for me? Jesus is above all because he comes from above all. John three thirty-one. he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, the opening and closing statements make clear, opening and closing statements of this verse make clear that coming from above means coming from heaven. Now, that's not focusing on Christ coming from heaven merely as a location. It's not trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus stepped down out of the location that is heaven in the same way that Say an angel would step down from heaven and come to earth. That's not the focus of this verse. The focus is on the greatness of Jesus' person in distinction from everyone else. So we see, that, we see from that contrast made here in verse 31 where John the Baptist says, He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks from the earth or speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, Jesus Christ did not originate from this world like the rest of us. His existence and nature is categorically different from ours. And therefore, by nature, Jesus is transcendent. He is ineffably above and beyond anyone and anything that is from this world. In John chapter 8, verses 23 through 24, Jesus uses this same language in reference to his divine nature, to make that very point. In verse 23, it says that Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. See, there he's making a a statement of quality. So the Pharisees are from the world, and therefore they, are, they have the quality of being from the world. They understand things as if they are from the world. They are limited in their perspective. But Jesus is above all. He is not from this world. He is from above. Verse 24 makes clear what he is saying. He says, I am from above, and unless you believe that I am. You will die in your sins. So the majority of commentators believe that Jesus is here claiming to be the I am. The one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Yahweh himself. And so when Jesus says, I am from above, he's not simply saying that that is where he came from. He came from above. He is also saying that he is, or excuse me, he is by making that statement, making a claim to deity. I am not of this world, I came from above, I am the I am, and I am the one who never had a beginning, but only pure self-existence. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am from above. Now, notice in verse 24 that according to Jesus, if a person does not recognize this truth about him, he or she has no salvation. He or she will die in his or her sins. Because not recognizing that Jesus is the I am. Only proves that that person has not yet come to understand the truth about who God really is. Now since Jesus is the only one who has come down to earth from heaven. He is by nature above all. There is no one like him. So that's John's first point. He's from Above And therefore he is above all. Which leads to the second truth John declares about Christ in John chapter 3, verse 32. Jesus is above all because his knowledge is above all. John chapter 3, verses 31 and 32, John says, He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from above is above all. What he has seen and what he has heard, of that he testifies... And no one receives his testimony. Now in these two verses, the contrast is between those who are of the earth and those who speak of the earth. And the one who comes from above and speaks of what he has seen and heard above. Above the earth. See, the difference here is a difference of perspective. One group speaks from a worldly perspective. That is, they speak from a perspective that is defined and limited by life and experience in this world. Christ, on the other hand, speaks to us from his own personal experience of eternal existence with the Father and from a heavenly perspective. And therefore, when Jesus comes to speak to us about what he has seen and what he has heard, what he is testifying to us is categorically different than anything else that could be stated by a man who is from the earth. His perspective is grander, it's larger, it's eternally greater than what can be derived from the mind of man. Because Jesus comes from above, that is, he comes from beyond, from beyond and outside of this world, his knowledge of what is true is not dampened by the limited perspective of life in this world, the limited perspective that we all have. You know, the whole world is filled with ideas about what God is like and who he really is and what he expects from us and how we can get to heaven and be with him forever. You've got Hinduism, you've got Buddhism, you have Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, you have Islam and Pantheism and Deism and Atheism. All of these things are religions. These are systems of belief Uh, made up of of ideas about God and man, about truth and heaven, and all of them have this one thing in common. They are all systems of belief that are built upon the limitations of human perspective. That's why every religion in the world is focused upon exalting man, right? Even atheism is a religion that exalts man above all. That's why every religion in the world, even those that claim deity, are focused upon the exaltation of man and what man can do and what man can be and what man can offer. Only Christianity comes to the world and says man can do nothing. Man can offer nothing unto God. It's all got to be God or it's nothing at all. All of those systems of belief are built upon the limitations of human perspective and human thoughts about what is true. They are earthly in their quality. They're not heavenly. They all speak about truth in an earthly way, and therefore they do not have the ring of a heavenly quality to them. And that's exactly why John says here in verse 32 that Christ has given this testimony, but no one receives the testimony of him who gave it. Why does the world not believe in the message of Jesus? Why does the world stumble over the gospel? It's because the testimony of Christ about what is true does not fit in with the common thinking of the ways of the world. The gospel of Christ is of a different quality than what the world would hold up to be true or desirable. The gospel of Christ is of a different nature and of a different standard. It's, it's actually offensive to the world because it is foolishness to them. It appears weak and it appears pathetic. And, and you know what's even more pathetic than the way they view the gospel is the way the church tries to accommodate that pathetic view of the gospel. The world is never going to understand or comprehend the reality and the glory of Jesus Christ on their own. So why does the church pander to the ways of the world, trying to get them into the door? We have forgotten that salvation really is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, haven't we? And the means by which the Holy Spirit works is the proclamation and the declaration of truth that has come down from heaven in the man Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness, right? This is John 1.5. The light of Christ shines in the darkness, but what's wrong with the darkness's ability to understand it? They're enshrouded by darkness and they cannot comprehend it. That's John 1.5, right? That is the state of the world. And, And that's the point that John is making. Many are going after Christ during this time, but not everyone is owning Christ the way he ought to be owned. We learned that from the end of John chapter 2, right? They were claiming to believe in him, but even their faith in him was deficient. It wasn't resting in who he was. It was just looking at what he was doing and saying, wow, that's a special guy. He can do amazing things. But it wasn't actually grounded and rooted in the person of Jesus Christ himself. There's darkness there. There's an inability to comprehend and in some ways, even John the Baptist and all of the other prophets of the scriptures can fit into this category. Not a one-to-one equal, uh, uh, They're not equal one-to-one, but they can still fit within this category. They are of the earth, and, and, and even despite the fact that they are inspired of the Spirit of God to speak the truth of God to people like us, they still are limited in their perspective of how it all fits together. So that's proven out by the fact that even though the, the prophets prophesied about the Scripture, none of them were ever able to fully comprehend or work out God's great plan of redemption in Christ. And John the Baptist serves as an example of that, doesn't he? Here we have John preaching his final sermon to his disciples, and yet not long after this, where do we find John? We find him in prison. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, as he's languishing in prison, he begins to struggle with whether or not this Jesus that he was exalting as Messiah actually is the promised one who was supposed to come or if we should be looking for someone else. Why was John struggling like that? How could a man who was proclaiming so much of the truth about Jesus, so much exalting and exalting in the nature of Jesus Christ, how could a man who does something like that reach a point just a couple months later where he's questioning the whole thing? Well, because even John, as great and important as a prophet as he was, could not fit all the pieces together. He was limited by the fact that he was from the earth, And his perspective was limited by the limitations of an earthly existence. One that has never been able of itself to see the realities of life from a heavenly perspective. But that was not the case with Christ. Christ came down from heaven. And what he has seen and heard from the perspective of heaven, he came down to make known to the world. So that we who are limited to a fallen and corrupted and sin-filled worldly perspective about reality would be able to comprehend and understand what is true. And beloved, that's the purpose of the entire New Testament. That's why you have New Testament scriptures. It's to communicate to you the fullness of the message that Jesus has come to testify to us. The entire New Testament is designed by the Holy Spirit to train us, who are followers of Christ, to look at the world around us and to look at all aspects of our lives, not from an earthly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, to retrain our minds and to reshape the mindset that we carry with us day to day and moment by moment. The purpose is to shed the earthly mindset in all of our earthly ways and to renew our minds according to the heavenly truth that Jesus Christ has made known to us in his testimony. So Jesus is not only above all because he comes from above, but he is above all because his knowledge is above all. His perspective of what is true is beyond any of our abilities to rival. Which leads to a third statement. Jesus is above all because, thirdly, he is the only way for anyone to have fellowship with God. Jesus is above all because he is the only way for anyone to have fellowship with God. John chapter 3, verses, man, parentheses here, I don't have this written in my notes, but that's really important for John's disciples to hear, isn't it? because they're upholding who as the ultimate teacher? John the Baptist, right? And they were just having an argument with the Jews about purification and how you can be pure in the eyes of God. They thought they were in the right. Remember what we said last, last week? What we see in their interactions with John is proof of the fact that they, even they were not yet in a right relationship with God. And so John declares to them, his disciples trying to ground this into them and, and root them in the truth of Christ that... The only way for anyone to have fellowship with God is to go to Jesus. John three thirty three 33-34, though there were many who did not receive Christ's testimony, it says that the one who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You know, the way that you respond to the teaching of Jesus Christ reveals the truth about your relationship with God. You either call God true or you call God false based upon how you respond to Jesus' testimony. You either believe in and receive God the Father and God the Holy Spirit or you reject them. And it all has to do with how you respond to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Notice that this testimony that Jesus came from heaven to give to us, notice that it involves all three persons of the Trinity. First of all, obviously, it involves the Son, right? Because the Son is the one who is incarnate. The Son is the one who is speaking to us as a man. He's the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is the one in whom we have seen the glory of the Lord with our own eyes, John says. So obviously, the Son, the eternal Son of God is involved, the only begotten of the Father. But then secondly, these verses also say that the Father was involved because the Son was sent by who? God the Father. Yep. This is actually going to become a major theme in this gospel that Jesus is the only one who has been sent from the Father into this world. John 10:36 for example, Jesus In this argument about whether or not he should call himself the son of God. People were offended by that. And Jesus looked at them and said, well, wait a second. What do you say of one who was sanctified by the father? That is one who was set apart and ordained as a holy messenger. What do you say as one who was sanctified by the father and then was sent by the father into the world? Is he not exalted is what Jesus is really getting at there with the Pharisees who are not believing in him. But the point is that Jesus rests a major part of his teaching upon the fact that he did not come of his own will. He did not come of his own volition or his own authority. Jesus was sent forth by the Father to declare the words of the Father to this world. Now that's important because it means that Jesus is the Father's only divinely appointed representative. In in the ultimate sense. Jesus is the Father's appointed representative. And we get that significance from the word that's used here even. When it says that Jesus is the one whom God has sent, that word belongs to the same group of words, that same family of words from which we get the word apostle. And you know what apostle means. It's one who is sent. right? One who is sent with the full authority of the one who sent him. So Jesus is the great apostle whom the Father has sent into this world, who came down from heaven with full and unreserved authorization to speak to us on the Father's behalf. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. I, I don't have time to do this, but I love that. Because it means whenever I read the words of Jesus and whenever I hear Jesus speaking to me from His Scriptures, when I'm sitting underneath the words of Jesus Christ, I'm sitting underneath the very words of the Father being given to me. There is a fellowship, there's a relationship between sitting under Jesus and sitting under the Father. To be under one is to be under the other. To receive a word from the Son is to receive a word from the Father. There's no division. There's no separation here. I remember when I was first saved, I I really struggled with this point. When the Lord brought me to salvation when I was 16, I had no problem with the idea of the Holy Spirit. I had no problem with understanding how to approach the Father, at least by my limited perspective, my limited understanding. I had no problem with that. Where I stumbled was, what do I do about Jesus? how do I come to God in Jesus' name? Isn't that kind of going somewhere else in order to get over to, to God? Just a really deficient understanding of the Trinity, right? The triune relationships of the God, one God, three persons, one three persons, one being. You guys get all that, right? Yeah, yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, we do and we don't, right? This is the glory of the Trinity is that it was revealed in time and history through experience, right? This is one of, the greatest, one of the greatest proofs that Christianity was not developed from the mind of man. Because man could never comprehend or come up with a system of belief in relation to God that, ha- that would have anything like the doctrine of the Trinity, Everyone stumbles over that doctrine. Is that not proof enough that this did not come from man? It didn't come from the mind of man. Well, anyway, that's a parenthesis there. So, Jesus is the Father's appointed representative. And he is the only one fully authorized to speak to us on behalf of the Father. Now, as as John 3.34 tells us, the Father sent the Son to, specifically, to speak the words of God. Hebrews 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2 puts it like this, that the, the Son is the, the final and definitive message of what the Father has to say to the world. That God is not going to say anything else to this world that he has not already spoken in his Son. Not till the day when his Son appears in glory. This is why Jesus says in John seven sixteen that my teaching is not my own, but the Father's who sent me, Right? When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And the only way to have fellowship with the Father is to believe in and receive what Jesus has said. So the Father is involved. The Son is involved in this revelation. But then also notice thirdly, John 3.34, that the Holy Spirit is fully involved as well. It says in John 3.34 that the Father empowered Jesus to speak the words of God by giving him the Spirit without measure. Without measure. It's actually in Greek. This is this is worded as a negative statement. So if you if you if you uh, translated this literally word for word, moving forward, it would say, "For not out of measure does the or did he give the spirit? Not out of measure did he give the spirit." In other words, the Father, when he empowered his Son for ministry among us, as the perfect. Man, the God-man, Jesus, when the Father empowered him to fulfill his work and to make known this testimony of God to the world, he didn't just give some part or some measure of the Holy Spirit to him in order to accomplish that. The Father chose to give all of the infinite fullness of the Holy Spirit to his Son in order to empower him for earthly ministry. Amen. Amen, brother. That's good. Jesus had the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Wow. We have only ever tasted parts of the Holy Spirit in our experience with God. You know that, right? What I mean by parts, I don't mean that the Spirit was cut up in pieces and He's being piecemealed out to us. What I mean is our experience of the Holy Spirit is limited to the here and now. We're not fully glorified with Christ yet. And so our experience of God through the means of the Spirit is very limited. We some of us, you know what I'm talking about, you have tasted so deeply of the reality of God and his nearness and his glory that you have been left beside yourself, unable to do anything else. I remember one night being so overwhelmed by the presence and the reality of God that all I could do was sit in my bed and weep for hours. Lord, I can't believe your glory. You are so wonderful. You're so majestic. Being caught up in the spirit of heaven. That's what happens when we taste of the Holy Spirit. And that is just a small measure of what's waiting for us in eternity. See, every, every man, a lot of parentheses today, right? Every taste that we get of the spirit of God and life of God in our souls. Every taste that we get is simply a measure that God gives to us to encourage us to press on after more. Have you ever had glory flood your soul? And then then been left afterward with a a sense that God had departed. Like, what happened? Wait, Lord, what did I do? You were just with me, it seemed, in a way that was very unusual. And now, where are you? In our experience, that can be something very trying, right? We have to remember in those times that when we have taste of the spirit like that, that fill us with a sense of glory... And then those tastes are gone. All that the Father has done is taken one step forward. And he's calling us to make another step forward with him. Right? It's an encouragement. It's to show us what's... what's it's, to, it's to teach us what is attainable in the, in the Christian life. In our experience, in our walk with God. We have measures of fellowship with God that go deeper in our experience, I mean. That go deeper than what our normal uh, normal experiences. And those things are there to encourage us to keep pressing on after Christ. Keep laboring towards more until the day of glory when we're finally and fully conformed to the image of God's Son. All right. Close another parenthesis there. The Holy Spirit was fully involved in the ministry of Christ as well in in making known this testimony to us. And so, so when the Father gives the infinite fullness of the Holy Spirit... To his Son in his earthly ministry, it was out of that infinite fullness of fellowship with the Holy Spirit that God the Son spoke the words of the Father to us. So it was out of this infinite, eternal fellowship with the Spirit of God that Jesus spoke forth the words of God. And what we're getting here is just a glimpse, we're getting a tiny glimpse in time of the relationship. Of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity. How they, have law, how, they have, how they have existed with one another, the triune God, from all eternity. The Holy Spirit has a unique function in revealing God's word to us. He is the one who empowered all the prophets who have spoken God's word in the past. So Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they all spoke the word of God by the Spirit of God. Second 2 Peter 1.21 confirms that. It says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So who is the initiator here? It was the Spirit of God. Right? Now, no prophet prior to Jesus Christ ever had that kind of ministry of the Spirit operating in their lives to the same degree that Christ did. They had it, they, had, they, they were... They had the word of God revealed to them at many times and in many portions, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says. But Jesus has the fullness of the eternal spirit poured out to him, given to him, in order to confirm and empower him in his ministry. And the purpose of that was so that the person of the Holy Spirit would ensure that the words spoken by the Son were clear, perfect communication to us from the Father. The Spirit of God is the one who made sure that the words of Jesus were actually the very words of the Father being spoken to us. Is your mind spinning yet on all these relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit, and how that works out in time and in eternity, and the difference and distinctions and yet similarities there? (sighs) Doctrine of the Trinity is glorious. And let me point out something here, too, that... The work of the Holy Spirit is inextricably tied to the words that Christ spoke. That's the connection in verse 34, where Jesus speaks to us the words of God because the Father filled him with the Holy Spirit without measure. This is why Jesus says in John 6, 63, that my words are spirit and are life. Spirit there should be capitalized. They are spirit and they are life. They are the very words of the Holy Spirit given to us. And because the words themselves are the product of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, therefore all true fellowship with the Holy Spirit is inextricably tied to our relationship to Christ's word. You cannot have a relationship with the Holy Spirit if it is not thoroughly enveloped in a relationship with God to His word. A relationship with God's word. We don't worship the Bible here, but we worship the God of the Bible. And his voice is given to us in the very pages of Scripture. Now all this means is is that it's impossible to believe in and have fellowship with any member of the triune God apart from believing in and receiving the testimony of the man, Jesus Christ. The testimony that he has given us. John three thirty one or three thirty three. It tells us that there is only one way to set our seal to this that God is true, and the only way to do that, the only way to profess faith in the true and living God, is by receiving the testimony about Him that He has given to us in His Son. You guys still with me? That sounded convincing. The God who is, is the God who is one with Jesus Christ. To deny one is to deny the other. And actually, if you reject the testimony about God that he has given us concerning Jesus, excuse me, if you reject the testimony about God that Jesus has given to us, you are by that act calling God a liar. 1 John 5.10, it says that the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does or has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So you cannot reject the testimony of Jesus without calling God the Father a liar. God the Father has testified to us about his Son in many ways. He testified to us about his Son at his Son's baptism... He testified to us about His Son at the transfiguration. He testified to us over and over again through the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus performed. He testified to us about His Son in the law. He testified to us about His Son through all of the prophets, including the final prophet, John the Baptist. And then ultimately, the Father gave witness to His Son about the truth of His Son and the truth of His Son's teachings when He raised Him from the dead. The father did all of that. And if you choose to reject Jesus Christ as his son, and you refuse to receive the son's testimony about his father, then you are calling God the father a liar, because you are saying that his work of vindicating his son and bearing witness to him was nothing more than a lie. And God is no longer God. The father was lying. The spirit was lying. Well, that's blasphemy. And no one blaspheming God can at the same time have fellowship with him. See, in order to have fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit, everyone is forced to have fellowship with Jesus Christ the Son. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In the touch point, the touch point, in other words, of all of our fellowship with God is Christ and his word. So our fellowship with God is entirely dependent upon our fellowship with his son. Now, fourthly, John says that Jesus is above all because the Father's love for his son is above all. Jesus is above all because the Father's love for his son is above all. Above and beyond anything else, the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all is proven by the love that the Father has for him. Wake up if you're sleeping. Wake up if you're sleeping. The Father's love for his Son is the greatest demonstration of the supremacy of Christ that we've ever been given. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father's love for the Son is seen in many ways throughout the Scriptures. In John 5.20, for example, John five verse twenty. The love of the Father for the Son leads the Father to reveal to His incarnate Son all that He is and all that He is doing. See, we are all stuck behind a curtain of obscurity. We live with God by peering through a veil, right, in one sense. We we look through a glass dimly, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. But for Christ, the Father made himself known to Christ and made himself as an open book to him. We're speaking of the God-man, the incarnate Son here. God the Son walked this earth as a man in perfect communion and fellowship with the Father. All of the... See, okay. All of the fellowship that the Son had with the Father in eternity past, He brought with Him when He invaded time. All the fellowship that the Son has had with the Father outside of creation, for, for all of eternity, all the fellowship that Jesus has had with the Father, He brought with Him as a man into time. That's why Jesus as a man can have a perfect vision of of what the Father is doing. All that the Father is doing, I see. And as I see, I do in like manner. That's John 5. Jesus Jesus did everything because what he was doing is what he saw his Father doing. That's glorious when you realize that the fellowship with the Father that Jesus brought into time as a man is a fellowship that he designed and determined to give to us as well. One day we're going to have the fullness of that fellowship. Revelation 22, one day we will be with God in a new heaven, a new earth, and we will see him face to face. The beatific vision, the glory of God put on display for us. Jesus had that as a man. And having that as a man in his earthly ministry was, a, was a, uh, a demonstration of the Father's deep love for him. But in John 3.35, the Father's love for the Son is manifested to us in a different way. The Father demonstrates his love for his Son when he gives all things into the hand of his Son. And to be clear, all things literally means in the Greek, all things, Everything. So, for example, in Psalm 2, verse 8, it says that all things that the Father has given into the hands of the Son includes kings and rulers of the earth and all the nations of the world. The Father has given the very ends of the earth to be the special possession of his Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus is the heir of all things. He has inherited everything. Everything belongs to him. That's that, that Kuiper uh, quote, Abraham Kuyper there's not there's not an atom, there's not a molecule in this universe over which Christ does not declare mine. It's all his. Psalm 8:6. The universe itself, God purposes for humanity. His purpose for humanity was that mankind would rule over the works of his hands and have all things put in subjection under man's feet. We fell from that glorious purpose when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. When Adam, in particular, rebelled against the command of God, we all fell from that glory. That's Romans 3:23. But in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, it makes clear that, that this psalm finds its fulfillment in the man, Jesus Christ, who is right now seated in heaven and crowned with glory and honor, and to whom the Father is subjecting all things in this world. John 17, 2, Jesus says, The Father gave his Son authority over all flesh. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, young and old, believer and unbeliever, all alike have been consigned to the authority of Jesus Christ. And you see, the, the Father's purpose in that is to have everyone honor his Son, even as they honor the Father. Why is the father so lovingly devoted to exalting his son? Why does he want everyone to honor the son to the same degree that they honor the father? It's because the father loves the son above all. And he has created everything that is in order to be a means of demonstrating his love to his son. Here's the main application of this morning's message and what John was driving home to his disciples. The only way that any of us can be in fellowship with the Father and fulfill the Father's purposes for us is if we have the same kind of love for the Son that the Father has for him. Same kind, not same degree. That's impossible. But the only way that we can have fellowship with the Father is if we join the Father in loving the Son. A love that willingly and gladly gives everything to Him to show and demonstrate that love. Right? I mean, how is the Father's love for the Son demonstrated in John 3.35? That love is demonstrated by the Father giving all things into His hand. Right? In the same way, in a similar way, you and I are called to join the Father in loving the Son and demonstrate that love by giving him all things in our lives. All of our lives, all of our, all of our devotion, all of our time, all of our energies, all of our ambitions, our plans and dreams, our marriages, our singleness, our parenting, our church body, our labors in work and our relationships with people, our, even our very thoughts, the Scripture says. Everything is designed by God and is called upon by God for us to give over to His Son in holy love, in holy devotion, in the, in the, in the devotion of simplicity and purity to Jesus Christ as our King. We are called to give Him absolutely everything. That's what, and, and to help one another do that, God has established the relationships of the church so that we would speak the truth in love to each other and help one another grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. The only way to honor the son, the way the father intends for us to honor the son, is to love him in a way that mirrors the father's love for the son. We have to give everything to Christ. Because he is above all, we must be willing and ready to give him all. And place him as king over all aspects of our lives. Now, number five, last one. According to John, Jesus is above all because he is the dividing line for all. I couldn't think of a better way to describe that. i got James White in my head now. Welcome to the dividing line. Jesus is above all because he is the dividing line for all. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here's the great division that exists between humanity: those who believe in Christ and have eternal life with God and those who refuse to obey Christ and who will eternally perish under the wrath of God. That's it. There's no gray area in between those two categories. There's no purgatory. There's no hoping that your good will some way outweigh your bad. There's there's no vain thinking about God at the last minute showing mercy to those who did not take the Father's testimony concerning His Son seriously in their lives. God the Father, in His zealous love for His Son, has made it clear there's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life for sinners to receive, and that is granted by the Father exclusively to those who are believing in His Son. If you believe in God's Son, and you cast all of your hope upon Christ for life and eternity, that is, you are believing in truth as the Son taught it, and you are believing in God's promises as the Son declared them, and you are believing and holding fast to the gospel as the Son spoke it, if that is you, then God the Father himself has promised that you are an heir with his Son of eternal life. But if you refuse to believe in the testimony of the Son, if you will not believe, or as John puts it, if you will not obey the Father's Son and His command to believe in His Son, if you will not follow His teachings and give to Him the allegiance of all of your faith and devotion, then you will eternally be an object of the Father's wrath. You know, the reason why good, gospel-driven preachers preach about hell and the wrath of God is because the Bible speaks about it. And the Bible speaks about the wrath of God for a reason. Not just so that you would be aware that it's a very real thing that many, many sinners will have to face on their own. Otherwise, what's the point in the cross, right? Right? What's the point in the Son of God being forsaken on a cross for sinners if not to deal with the eternal wrath of God for sinners? There's no gospel if there's no wrath. You understand that? There's no good news. There's no hoping in Jesus if you don't understand what you have to hope in Him to be saved from. Like Leonard Ravenhill. Oh, you're saved. Well, what are you saved from? Are you saved from, are you saved from lust? Are you saved from sins? Are you saved from bad manners? Come on, what are you saved from? You're saved from from God if you are saved in Jesus Christ. You're saved from the wrath of God. You need to understand this. Even believers in here, you need to get this because this is what's going to drive you to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. You understand that the warning passages in scripture are there for a reason. They're not there just to tell us what false believers might, what what will happen to false believers. They're there to warn all who profess to be true believers to examine themselves and to keep their feet walking in the narrow path of the gospel. If you won't follow Jesus, if you won't receive the teaching of the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will eternally be an object of the Father's wrath. And you need to remember that receiving Jesus as the Father's message to you is not just something that we do here on Sunday mornings. It's not something that we did 20 years ago, and now we're good. We got our gospel shot, and we're all fine. That, that's not the way it works receiving the Lord Jesus Christ is something that we do moment by moment and day by day. It's something that we wake up in the morning and, and, re, and, and do all over again in a sense. We, we submit ourselves to Christ. We, we, we renew our mind with the truth of His Word and we bow before that truth confessing Jesus Christ as Lord every single day. In the morning, when we, when we get up, we run to the Word so that we would understand more clearly what it means for Christ to be Lord over us. And then we bow our knees to God in prayer and humble submission to Christ as Lord over us. And we beg and we plead for the Lord. Fill us with Your Spirit, O Lord. Fill me with Your Spirit so that I can live out my allegiance to Jesus Christ as King in a worthy manner today. That's the that's of Christian life. This is how we live. This is how we go moment by moment. If we're not doing that, if we are not among those who are doing that, then we are not believing in Jesus. And if we're not believing in Jesus, then we will eternally be the object of the Father's wrath because the person who has rejected Jesus and thought so lightly of the Father's love that he's given us in his Son, those who have spurned this gift of his love will suffer for it. You know, the change here, a lot of people make a big deal about that change from belief to obedience, belief to obey in, in John 3, 36. I think there's a very simple reason for that change. And it's because the gospel is not just a declaration of hope, it's a command. It's a command to receive that hope. We're all commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we won't do that, then we if we cannot and we will not, receive Jesus Christ and obey the command to believe upon Him, then we cannot and will not be saved in the day when the Father vindicates His Son over against all of His enemies. We will find ourselves being one of those enemies. See, the, father has, uh, the love of the Father for the Son is so great that God the Father makes His Son the hinge for every human being as they swing out into eternity. The father, in other words, the father forces everyone to have personal dealings with his son. Either prior to the day of judgment, by closing with his son in faith, or at the day of judgment, when all of his, ne- all of his enemies are forced to bow and confess his glory. Either way, God demands every single human being to have personal interactions with Jesus Christ. And every single one of us will. So whether a person receives the gift of eternal life or remains condemned under the wrath of God, it all hinges upon how we respond to Jesus. What God will do with you depends on what you do with what he has made known to us in his Son. John declared all of this to his disciples in hope that this message would land on them with weight and power and force them to give themselves over to Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly why the Holy Spirit has preserved this final message of John the Baptist for us. So that we too would be crushed under the holy weight and glory of the supremacy of Jesus. And that we would flee to him and in faith give ourselves to him. And I pray that that's you. I know I'm an odd preacher and can be very hard to sit under at times. I'm not, I'm not ignorant of that you guys are very gracious but at this point the question that remains is simply this which which one are you what camp are you in are you believing in jesus practically not not have you made a profession of faith but are you actually are you actually living a life that proves you believe in Jesus Christ. You're, you're turning away from sin in practical ways. You're not, you're not watching that TV show and, and you're not listening to that radio program and, and, you're, and you're not letting your eyes look upon that person that way. You're not, you're not fostering bitterness in your heart. You're, you're actually seeking to live in reconciliation and love and harmony within your marriages. You're seeking to love one another in the truth of Christ. You're seeking to use all that Christ has given you in your lives for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. Is that you? Don't deceive yourself into thinking that just because you've made a profession of faith that all of a sudden you're going to be saved by that profession. That profession must work its way out in life. It must lead to obedience to the Son. Which one are you? Are you believing or are you disobeying? May the Lord help us hold fast to our hope in Christ firmly to the end. Until the day when he who comes from above will come again and will receive his own unto himself. Father, we pray that you would guard our hearts unto that end. Lord, we don't want to play games. We don't want to be guilty of thinking lightly of these matters. Lord, this eternity is at stake. You make that very clear to us right here in John 3. We must be born again, and we must see Christ as supreme. And we must respond to his supremacy in faith. Lord, please give us grace. Give us grace unto that end. And may Oak Ridge Community Church be a body of believers with hearts that are more, more firmly and tightly bound to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 May you go in peace.